0: covetousness a sin against yourself a sin against yourself of course it's one of the ten commandments and uh, we'll get we'll get to reading the commandment but first I want you to turn to acts 20 verse 32 through 35 this is uh, Paul writing here and his, his sort of his farewell message to the uh, the church in Ephesus, and he's talking to them about his, his conduct among them. And he says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. At the time, this teaching of Jesus took conventional wisdom and turned it upside down. It was a new idea. You know, Better to give than to receive? What? Are you nuts? Now, 2,000 years have passed, and the idea has been promoted by various churches, Bible-reading people, and so our culture is very familiar with this idea. Oh, it's better to give than to receive. People hear that. You especially hear it when people want something from you, right? (laughs) Now, our society may be familiar with the idea, that it is better to give than to receive, but that does not mean that we actually live by it or practice it. Some do, some don't, but really as a society, I don't know that that's our, uh, our main focus, our main thrust. For the most part, in my opinion, uh, my observation, we still measure a person, the measure of a man, the measure of a woman, by how much they were able to sock away in the bank or what level status they were able to achieve or how much authority. In other words, what they were able to get, what they were able to draw into their life. And that's when we look at a person and we think, well, you know, are they, are they important or not? Those are the criteria that we, I believe, generally use. To say that giving is better than getting indicates that there is a more important measure of a person than simply what they are able to acquire. And that more important measure is what flows out from them to others. Go to Luke 12. I'm not saying that's how people think, but I'm giving you a biblical perspective. What flows out is more important as far as the measure of a person. Luke 12 verse 15, Jesus once again, people have, uh, as far as the context here, people actually come to him and said, you know, we've got these, uh, we've got a financial dispute, he owes me money or I want money, can you help us settle this? All those people crowding around Jesus all the time, they wanted lots of different things from him. Here they're trying to get him to sort out their financial affairs and he says, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed, life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. And then he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, hmm, what shall I do? I, have, I don't have enough room to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many of years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Covetousness is about focusing on what flows into your life. Focusing on the incoming rather than the outgoing. But why give a command? Why is this a command? I mean, it's the 10th of the commandments. Well, why is this a command? I mean, it just sounds like good advice, you know? Why is it a command? A command to tell us not to desire stuff? Well, wait a minute. I mean, how how does me wishing that I had my neighbor's big fancy house harm anybody? What harm does that do? Doesn't hurt him, right? Just because I want his house or whatever he has. Now, look, if if I were to then, you know, murder him and take his house, that would be bad. But we have other commandments that cover that, don't we? We have a commandment that says, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. Why a commandment about me thinking about his house all the time? Why prohibit coveting? Now the answer, I started off with the answer I have, the answer is because it hurts you. It hurts me if I do it. It hurts us. And it's a commandment that is harmful to you, to your soul, to the one thinking the thoughts. Even if you never act on them, it's harmful to you. This is how I intend to approach the subject today. Covetousness is a sin against yourself. We've heard about the division of the commandments into love God, love man, right? The first four commandments are about love toward God, how to go about it, to worship, to obey. The next commandments describe what it means to show love towards other human beings. And I believe that would be the next five through practice of justice, respect, which is really to me the the motivation behind the commandment not to lie to people or steal or commit adultery. But then there's one left behind. There's one left over, the 10th commandment. And I put it to you that we have the commandments about love toward God, love toward fellow human beings, and one that's, I believe, really about love toward ourselves. Don't covet. And it kind of digs right into your your brain, you know? It's a commandment about what you think about, if you, you, know, if you get right down to it. This, this commandment, the final commandment, I believe, gives us some straight talk on how to love yourself. You've probably heard people talk about this. Ah, oh, I need to learn to love myself, which usually means treating yourself to a whole bunch of wonderful things. But to love yourself is, I think, addressed in this commandment, which is don't be materialistic. Don't be materialistic. And I hope to show you that covetousness is more than just greed and envy. Those are included in it, but it's bigger. And to make that point, I have to kind of dive into the meaning of covetousness and the words used. Go to Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, covet is the English translation of a Hebrew word, right? Because that's the original language, Hebrew. And the Hebrew word there is kamad, and its definition is to greatly delight in. To greatly delight in. So it says, you shall not greatly delight in your neighbor's house or his wife or any of his stuff. It doesn't actually say, you should, don't be greedy for it. It just says, don't set your heart on things like that. It's what I'm going to call a value neutral verb. Like running, you know, running, running into trouble. Well, then it's bad, right? <laughs> running into an old friend. Well, then it's good. It's, it's value neutral. The running itself doesn't have a value attached to it, and the delight is like that. It's it's just value neutral. What makes this desire good or bad depends on what it's directed towards. A person can actually greatly delight in good things or in bad things. Now, without turning there, I'm going to give you two examples here. There's, there's several more. One, Psalm 19 says, the Lord's judgments are to be greatly delighted, to be desired more than pure gold. Well, that's come out It's the same thing. Greatly desired. The Lord's judgments are to be desired more than pure gold. Another, Genesis 2. God caused every good tree that is desirable and delightful to the eye, and good for food to be in the garden. That's another use of the word chamad, but they're both positive, right? They're desires that are good for good things, beautiful things. And actually, when you if you go and do this, uh, you know, do one of those word searches, you'll see that chamad is mostly used in Scripture about desiring things that are good or beautiful. So that word there. Thou shalt not covet when it's used for the most part in the Old Testament is about good things, but not always. Sometimes it's about bad things. Now, older translations of the Bible, like the King James, for example, they have all these other words, these other words in Hebrew that mean different things, but are also translated covet. So when you're reading covet in the Bible, It doesn't necessarily come from the word kamad. It could be something else. And that kind of creates confusion and creates this idea that coveting is really always nasty. Example, Exodus 18, verse 21. Here's a different word. Exodus 18, verse 21. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men, who Hate dishonest gain, that's what the NIV says. Now, if you're reading in the King James, it probably says who don't covet and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So, you're gonna find in the King James, I mean, who, who's using the King James? Does it say covet? Yep, covetous men. That's a different word. The word there is betsa, betsa, which means gain, profit. And it actually is also a value-neutral noun, but it's mostly used in the context of gain that comes through violence or deceit. Now, like I mentioned, the NIV translates it as dishonest gain, which I think is a better way of separating out the ideas. But the traditional translations, and it's not just the King James, it's others, the traditional translation of all these various words as covet leads us to believe that coveting is really about Excessive greed or obsessive longing for some object. Greed, envy, things like that. Now look, those are examples of coveting. Yes, indeed. They are included in the coveting um, corral. Those are forms of coveting. But what the commandment says is simply, don't greatly desire in. Don't set your heart on stuff like that. Don't set your heart on your neighbor's house his wife, his stuff, his donkey, etc. So I believe the commandment addresses an even larger concept than greed or envy or dishonest gain. Now we also see this in the Greek language. It's the same thing in the New Testament. If we define covetousness in the New Testament, we get the same basic answers. But the commandment, again, is about desire. Go to Romans 7, verse 7. Paul, writing about the laws, he says, What shall we say then? Is, is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was if I had not known the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So Paul's quoting the commandment here, and he's putting it in Greek. And this is in the New Testament. And he does it again in chapter 13, verse 9. The commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. So there you've got it twice in the New Testament, covet. And the word there is epithumio, Greek word, of course. And again, it's a value neutral verb, and it can be directed towards both good and bad things. Okay, for example, first Corinthians twelve, verse thirty one. Let me back up a little bit to verse 29. Paul's going on about things that are in the church. And he says, are all apostles, all prophets, all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Speaking in tongues, do all interpret? And then he says, now eagerly desire. Covet. It's the word covet. Epithumio. Covet the greater gifts. What does it say in the King James there? Covet. And then he goes on to say what those are, which are love. He's basically saying, covet love. (laughs) Covet all these qualities of love. You know, patience, willingness to protect. Things like that. You know, you can read through uh, 1 Corinthians 13. So coveting, this, this epithumio, can be directed towards good things as well. Scriptures tell us, covet the qualities of love. Covet those things. Set your heart on those things. Now, when it comes to the 10th commandment, desire is not what does you the harm. The desire is not what does you the harm. Remember, the commandment says, do not greatly desire your neighbor's house, wife, stuff, etc. The desire is not what does you harm. You have the same desire, you can direct it towards the fruits of the Spirit and things like that. And the scriptures actually tell you to do that. What creates the problem is what your desire is directed towards. That's what creates the problem. What it is directed towards. Directing that desire towards the wrong things does you harm. Now again, just to close this out in the Greek, there's a variety of of Greek words that indicate greedy desire, love of money, reaching out to grab and hold on to things, and those are also translated as covet which brings this whole idea into the new testament of coveting as being about you know (laughs) i want all the money in the world but it's about the desire now let's take a look at the rest of the command here as we've looked at the verb the action desire it's value neutral and it's made bad by what you focus on so what 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 should we not covet Maybe that 'll help us get this all figured out. What not to covet now the examples that are used in the commandment were or, and are relevant to an agricultural and village sort of life, but not not quite so much to the 21st century. for example you 've probably never you here have probably never greatly desired your neighbor 's donkey. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> have you? No, you, you, you know, you haven't desired your neighbor's donkey. Uh, but if you consider the examples that are there in the commandment and consider them as categories of stuff, they are very applicable to the 21st century. Okay, the house. Do not desire your neighbor's house. Well, that's, I mean, you can say, well, you know, my neighbor lives in an apartment. Eh. We don't have houses here. Well, it covers property, your neighbor's house, his property, homes, luxury goods, furnishings. All those things would be covered by, I believe, a category of property. It says your neighbor's wife. Don't direct your heart towards your neighbor's wife. I believe that could be considered a category that covers your neighbor's entire sex life, their family life, their social status, because all those things were attached to a person's marriage. It says, don't desire your neighbor's servants. Well, there's another one that's probably not, you know, really on your mind, because we don't have that kind of an economic society right now. So servants, well, that's economic status. Don't desire your neighbor's economic status, his standing among men. And that could include his high-paying job or his exciting career or her exciting career. Things like that. Now that makes it a little more 21st century, doesn't it? Oh man, I wish I had a job like so-and-so. What about the donkey? All right, the donkey. Well, what was a donkey in an agricultural setting? A donkey was many things. A donkey was the tool... With which a person generated wealth. You had a donkey and you were taking a step up in the world because you had a way to plow the field better. You had transportation. So if you think of it as a category, the tools which which you create wealth, that could be your education, a person's education. Oh, if only I had a PhD like so-and-so, then. Oh, <laughs> Or maybe they run their own business. Or they own a tow truck, and it's a beautiful tow truck. I wish I had a tow truck. Right? The tools of wealth. Now, these categories, if you think about it that way, they're as relevant today as they ever were. And these are the type of things that the command is saying, don't set your heart upon, don't greatly desire. And if you really get down to it, there really isn't much outside those categories. (laughs) That covers everything, really. It covers everything. Now, what is wrong with desiring these things? What is wrong with desiring them? I've said it's harmful for us. Well, what? Why? How? Come on, what? Well, one thing is they belong to another person. They're not yours. So there's the respect for property. But we we already have a command that deals with that. Don't steal, which is all about property rights. That's already kind of covered. Acting on the desire and taking them from the other person, well, they're, they're different. The taking is covered by another commandment. Don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. So let's take another approach at it. What, what might be wrong with coveting? Well, two, they are not valid measurements of self-worth. And this is where I believe we get into the way that it harms you. Those are not valid criteria for measuring a person's worth or your own worth in particular. And it is harmful to you and it is harmful to every one of us to measure our success in life by comparing ourselves to other people. And that's spoken of in the scriptures elsewhere. Don't compare yourself to one another. And that, I believe, is the really big picture overarching vision of the tenth commandment you do yourself harm when you do that comparing yourself to others especially in regard to material wealth and status now if someone is a a tremendously compassionate person and you were to say I wish I was as compassionate as so and so well, that would probably be a little different the commandment says don't focus on their stuff And I'm sort of extending it to their status, which they gain through all the stuff they've got. And compare yourself to them. It is a false measure. And God says in no uncertain terms, don't do that. Don't think like that. Don't even start. Because it's harmful. I'm adding this. It's harmful to your mental, your emotional, and your spiritual health. And that's why I say it's a commandment that is about not sinning or harming yourself. And how do you love yourself? Don't think like that. Things, stuff, you know, whether it's a donkey or a house, or whatever, things are appealing. They're very appealing. They satisfy the senses. They give a feeling of fulfillment. And they can build up our feelings of self-worth. You know, if we achieve, a, you know, there's things that are good about that. If you achieve a goal and you think, man, I've achieved a goal, and you measure it by how much you've been able to, I don't know, put in the bank, okay. But what's really important is the goal setting and the goal achieving. The money is actually secondary. So it can build up your your sense of self-worth. It can uh, do wonderful things for you. But the satisfaction and the fulfillment and the self-esteem that comes from acquiring stuff is not lasting. It doesn't last. You get this initial glow from acquiring something. Ooh, finally getting it. And you get this buzz, right? But it goes away. It goes away. And what happens next is, well, I want to get that feeling back. So you're off to get more right? That's how it works. If you've ever known anybody who has a lot of money, they usually want more. Not because they need it. They want the buzz. They want the feeling. And they're never going to be satisfied because it doesn't last. The happiness will wear off. And they want the buzz back. Does it remind you of anything? Does it remind you of like an alcoholic maybe? Or a drug addict? When they come down, man, I want to get back up on top. I'm going for another drink. I need another head. It's an addiction. And it's not good for you. The biblical perspective is is that things are good, but they are tools. That's all they are. They're tools. They're tools used along the way. And the only good thing that really comes from and the only lasting thing that comes from them is whether or not we use them through stewardship to build or not build godly character. That's what matters. That's what should be coveted. <laughs> the godly character. Because that's all we get to take with us in the resurrection. That's all that comes along with us in the resurrection. Now, if we establish, you establish, I establish, our ideas of what is worthy or our ideas of what brings happiness on material objects, we are being short-sighted. We're not thinking big picture. We're not thinking long-term because all your stuff will disappear when you enter the grave. The day you die, it's not yours anymore. It goes to someone else. All that stuff you've gathered together, your house, your car, your money, someone else gets it. Sometimes it's not even your family. Someone else gets it. And guess what? You'll never get it back. Ever. It's not coming back. You might have put millions of dollars in your bank account. The day you die, it's... And it's never coming back. You're not going to rise up in the resurrection and, oh, well, here's your bank book again. That's not how it's going to work. What does follow you through into the resurrection is your character. The fruits of the spirit, for example. Those will pass through death, through resurrection, and they will be yours. And they will be with you forever. And as Paul said there, covet the greater gifts and then he goes on in chapter 13, and I hope you know chapter 13 of Corinthians, because it's all about love, and it talks about love never fails, and uh, you know, it's not, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the kind of things that pass through with you. And the, that is why these are the possessions to set your heart upon. Covet these things. And we read in the Old Testament, covet, if you will, the judgments of God, the righteousness of God, covet the gifts and fruits of the Spirit, covet those things. Okay, let's talk about dealing with covetousness, because it's kind of there, isn't it? I mean, it's already kind of in there. (laughs) You kind of get it by osmosis living in in, uh, the 21st century America, there's just so much stuff. Go to Philippians 4 and verse 11. Paul is in prison when he writes this, and uh, he's writing this letter to the people in Philippi, and he tells them, You know, I'm, I'm so glad to hear from you people that you've shown concern for me. I'm guessing that they sent him a little something to, to help him. And uh, he says, Well, thanks for sending that. Then he goes on to say, I'm not, in verse 11, I'm not, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, because I was desperately wanting this, this gift from you. For I have learned to be content, whatever my circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So he was in prison, like I said, he was in prison. And, you know, he, he, he was in prison because he, he'd been preaching the truth in all these cities and it caused riots, <laughs> problems, and he was thrown in prison. And Paul had his down days. If you read some of the other letters that he wrote from prison, he had his days when he was, you know, dismayed. But it wasn't about lack of stuff. It was about the people around him. But Paul could be content because he had a lot to actually be happy about in spite of the fact that he was in prison, arrested. What could Paul be happy about? Sounds like a pretty miserable situation. What's, What's he happy about? Well, one, he had the glory and satisfaction of a life well lived. He had always given glory to God and done his will. Even when he didn't know the truth, he was seeking God's will. If you think about Paul, he had lived with great zeal and passion for the preaching of the truth. And at the end of his life, you know a bit about Paul, and we, we talked about this a couple of months ago, at the end of his life he could say, I have fought the good fight and I have overcome. And he could actually feel pretty good about what he had done. And that had a lot to do with his contentment and his ability to face his circumstances with contentment. If you think about it this way, Paul had invested heavily in eternity. You know, some people might say, well, I wish I had bought Google. You know, I wish I had bought Google uh, 10 years ago. I would be rich. Or maybe Apple You know, in the 90s, like that guy in Forrest Gump. You know, if I had only bought apple on the ground floor, zoom, I'd be a wealthy, wealthy person. Paul had invested heavily in eternity. And he was going to benefit from it. And he knew, I have fought the good fight. So he was ready. He was ready to face anything. Go to Matthew 6, verse 33. Great verse. Memory verse. Verse 33. Seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. If you read the whole section there, he's talking about stuff, material, being material wealth, money, clothes, house, houses. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the rest of this stuff will be taken care of. Okay, God will take care of you. Your creator will see to it that you have what you need, It may not be all you want, all right? (laughs) May not be all you want, all that you desire, but you'll have what you need, usually with a little extra on top. That's how God rolls. Unless you're doing stupid things with your life and you can cause your own suffering. But as far as blessings come, that's usually how it rolls. God takes care of what you need and gives you a little bit of extra. Not a lot, but a little bit of extra. God doesn't hold people back if they want to focus on making a lot of money either. He lets you do that. But as far as him taking care of you, that's how he tends to roll. So covetousness needs to be addressed. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be part of our program of overcoming. Because we need to change the way we think. We need to put on the mind of Christ. So we want to overcome coveting, right? Well there are three steps I have for overcoming covetousness. Uh, none of these are going to really blow you out of the water. I think you've heard these kind of things over and over again. That's what we do. The first step to overcoming covetousness is to love and obey God. That was simple. To love and obey God. Love of money, love of stuff, love of status, love of, you know, your neighbor's donkey can push God out of your thoughts, out of your mind, out of your thinking. And if it is pushed out of your thinking, then it's pushed out of your actions as well and how you interact with other people and how you deal with life. Love of money can push God out of your thoughts. You can be a lover of money rather than a lover of God. And that is, I believe, why love of money is equated with idolatry. Love of money is a form of covetousness. It's not the complete story of covetousness. It's part of covetousness. Uh, Go to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 through 11. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered away from the truth and pierced themselves with many griefs yeah money love money covetousness can push god out of your mind and out of your life and it just says it over and over again, your stuff will not be waiting for you when you are resurrected. And if you think about it, let me, let me try and give you a word picture. I mentioned, you know, when you're resurrected, you're not going to be, you know, handed your bank book. Oh, well, here's all the stuff you left behind. We've taken good care of, of it for you. In fact, it's you know, over a thousand years. Imagine the compound interest. No, that's not going to happen. What will be waiting for you at resurrection, God. God will be there waiting for you to arrive. And I picture God very pleased to see you. I am so glad to see you here in the resurrection. This is wonderful. I am overjoyed. God will be there for you. Don't push him out of your mind for money because it won't be there. But God will be there waiting for you. When you were resurrected. And it will be beautiful and joyful. And that's what he's looking forward to. Filled with love and gladness. Just to see you there. Okay another way to overcome covetousness. My second point. Have faith and confidence in God. Again. Nothing earth shattering about that. Have faith and confidence in God. Hebrews 11 verse 26. Let me back up to verse 24. It says by faith. Moses, and that's faith towards God. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He must have had access to a lot of stuff, a lot of material goods. He chose rather to be mistreated along with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. And he persevered because he saw him who is unseen. So there's an example of a person who had everything to covet. He could have wanted more. Let's invade Assyria so I can get all their stuff too. Psalm 16 verse 11. But notice also that uh, Moses was aware that he was picking the pathway of uh, trouble and reproach. Okay, Psalm 16, verse 11. Love this verse. I think I'm going to back up to verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices, and my body will also rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, so hope in the resurrection, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You made known to me the path of life, and you fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Love that section of Psalm 16. And that's what I liked about the first message today. Looking forward. Thinking about what lays ahead. Thinking about the positive things that are there. And dwelling on that. Instead of all the terrible, yucky stuff that's going on all around us. Be forward thinking. Look ahead. Have faith in God's promises and look ahead. Wrap your mind around the experiences and the joys that are possible if you attain eternal life. All that you can see and do, an active role in the universe-ruling family of God. Wow. Leading, teaching, expanding the boundaries of the universe itself. Think big. Think in the future. Okay, the third step to overcoming covetousness, practice, generosity. Practice generosity. Get engaged with your time, your money, and your attention. Go to James 1 verse 27 which says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unspotted from the world, unpolluted. Orphans and widows are categories of people who don't have a lot. They have nothing. They're They're the bottom, you know, on the economic status and, you know, especially at that time. They were the people that had nothing. And God's advice is, spend some time with these people. Spend time with people who don't have a lot and it will change you for the better. It will change you for the better. If you're in this, if you're in this covenant with God, if you're in this project of putting on the mind of Christ, you should want that kind of change. Now, People who practice... I'm going I'm to talk a little bit about the... Does God hate rich people? You know, I have to put that in there. So here I, here I go. Is wealth wrong? Look, when it comes to wealth, people who practice godly virtues, and hopefully you know some. <laughs> I know you do. People who practice godly virtues tend to get ahead in life. They just do. They tend to get ahead. They tend to do well at, at work. They tend to have more stable families. And so they tend to be a little more ahead of their peers. That, I mean, there's there's rich and poor in the church. But people who practice godly virtues tend to do well. Now, sometimes that's because God himself supernaturally intervenes and uh, materially blesses a person. Uh, but I actually I don't think that that's usually the case. It happens. I'm not saying it doesn't. But I think that that's more the exception than the rule. I believe that followers of godly virtues do well, mostly because the laws of God and the ways of God are in sync with reality. And they work. As Mr. Kosher likes to say, <laughs> God's way works. Well, he's right. God's way works. And when people put it in practice, it yields good results. So that happens, you know, and you see that. God's people tend to do okay. God's people are not usually fabulously wealthy. We don't have a trillionaire in the, in the church. But neither are they destitute. God's people are not destitute either. They're not fabulously wealthy, but they're not destitute. They usually have what they need, as I mentioned before, with a little leftover to spare. And God usually gives you a little leftover. Why? Why? Because he wants to know what you're going to do with it. Will you spend it on yourself? Will you be generous with it? What are you going to do? He wants to know. This is what God wants. He wants you to have enough. He wants you to have your needs and a little bit more. Because it puts you in the position to use the extra that you have. And in the process, develop the godly mindset of generosity. Think about that. I I mentioned the project in Angola. Just think about it. Think about this as well as your offertory message for the Holy Days. We're not going to have an offertory message during the service. This is your offertory. Think generously. Okay, that'll cover both Holy Days. <laughs> We're taking up an offering. But think about the Angolan Project as well. Think about people that you can help out, you know, that you know personally in your neighborhood, things like that as well, of course. Develop the godly mindset of Generosity. So here we go. We've got those three. Love, faith, and generosity. Those are the antidote to the spirit of covetousness. A covetous spirit is dangerous. It can harm you. It's also dangerous because it has the potential to pass through into the resurrection. Your stuff can't. But your covetousness could if God allowed it. Because it's a spiritual quality. Go to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. I'm going to ratchet it up a notch here and talk about the covetous spirit. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. I touched on this a little earlier, but we're going to go back to it. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, again, this is is the philosophical musings of someone who had everything, (laughs) who had all the money in the world. And he says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. It is meaningless. All of this is vanity and meaningless. Never satisfied. But covetousness and the desire to acquire possessions is never satisfied. Never satisfied. Never content. And never happy. That does not sound like a good plan for eternity. To never be happy. If I told you, well, you're going to live forever, but you're never going to be happy, you're always going to be dissatisfied, you're never going to be content, would you be enthused? (laughs) The commandment is for your good, and it's forward thinking into the millennium, into the eternity. The covetous spirit will always want just one more thing, and when it has that one more thing, then it is going to want just a little bit more until all that is left to desire is the very throne of God. Because at some point, it'll be like the Monopoly game, you know? You get everything, and you want more. You've got it all, but I don't have God's throne. And if we allow ourselves to measure our self-worth by comparing ourselves with others, which again, I believe is what the commandment is about, there will always be someone slightly higher than us you see that in life there's always someone there's always someone who has a little bit more than you but look there's only room at the top for one only room at the top for one if you want to be the best that's one there's only room at the top for one and when we get right next to whoever's on top the covetous spirit will want to top even that Until all that is left is to be greater than God. And the creator of humanity wants to give you everlasting life. Wants to be there when you're resurrected. And smile and be filled with joy. But he does not want you to bring the spirit of covetousness into eternity. For your sake and for everyone else's sake. The plan of eternity is for joy and peace and All kinds of good stuff. And desire for what others have is not compatible with the future that God has planned. Go to James 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Why is there so much trouble with you people? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't get it because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, on yourself. God doesn't want any of this in eternity. You you need to leave that behind. And He gives you the commandment to remind you all the time, don't do it. It's bad. It's bad for you, it's bad for everyone. God doesn't want it. Doesn't want war and conflict in eternity and in his family. So in conclusion, those who reign with Christ, those who will reign with Christ at his return will have done battle. They will have fought the good fight and they will have done battle with all forms of sin. And in so doing they will learn the basics of life. Love God, love others. Love yourself. And that will include, as we have talked about today, learning to exercise control over what you desire and what you set your heart upon. And control that. The inheritance that is prepared for us is great. Together with Christ, we will possess all things, but not in the spirit of covetousness, but a spirit of outflowing generosity concern for others, and joy, because it is better to give than to receive.